Okay, we're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning. So if you have a Bible, please open it up to John chapter 20. There are some black Bibles that look like this in the chairs in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those. We, uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that home. That's our gift from you. One of the greatest gifts that anyone ever gave me was a Bible. And I love buying new Bibles. So please take that home. If you have one of those black pew Bibles, we're going to be on page 906. And as we do each and every week and show reverence to God's word, would you please stand as I read John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For they... For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the sins from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, uh, and and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it inside my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. We pray with me, Father, thank you for this day. Lord, just like Mary thousands of years ago was up early in the morning and running to the tomb to see and finish the burial rites of Jesus, I was up early this morning, 4 a.m., and, and just pondering the significance of the resurrection of Christ, what that means in my life and my family, my kids, my friends, and my church. Lord, I pray that everyone in here comes to the reality that you are the resurrection and the life. You are the peace that surpasses all understanding. You are the Lord, and you are our God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. One more time, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Yes, I, I, I love that video. I love that video because it puts the resurrection in our cultural context, doesn't it? This event that we think that happened 2,000 years ago, what if it happened today? How would Jesus spread the word, he is risen? Maybe, you know, I showed that video maybe two or three years ago at our Easter service, and Instagram wasn't, uh, uh, you know, at its full swing like it is today. So maybe Jesus would have used maybe Instagram, right, uh, this year, you know? He would he'd have his little selfie, take it, the grave behind him, and be like, take a little picture, you know, like, I'm out of here, right? And then send it to everyone. But I want you to think on and, and how you would respond. How, how would you respond to getting that text, to seeing that picture, he is risen? Would you, would you be like the guy in the mountain and just like, yes? Or would you sit and, and cry? Would you uh, maybe do a dance like some of the people were doing? Or would you just sit and contemplate the implications of what this means? How would you respond to that text, to that picture? He is risen. As I think about it, I'd probably do all of them, Right? I would do this whirlwind of emotions would take over me, and I would pump my fist. I would do a little dance, you know, the, the nay-nay or the cabbage patch, 1980s cabbage patch, running man, right? You order a couple, might be the hustle, right? You might get that in. Then I would probably shed tears of joy and sit and contemplate. What, what does this mean for me? What does it mean for my wife and my kids? You see, the resurrection was an epic event in human history. In fact, most sacred and secular historians say it was one of the most important events in human history. The world was never the same the day that Jesus rose. 
And that's why this morning we, we gather. I mean, we gather every Sunday, and every Sunday is important. Every Sunday we come and open up God's Word, and we, we come have fellowship, and we sing songs to Him, and we pray, and we, we learn more about Him. We grow in our relationship with Him and each other. But today has a certain weight to it, uh, maybe a little bit more glorious because of the subject at hand. B.B. Warfield said this, the resurrection of Christ is the center of the gospel in the Christian faith. If you're a Christian here, if you're a follower of Christ, if you repent of your sins and trust in Him, today is the pinnacle on our calendar and of our faith. Jesus rose from the dead. And I want every person in here to answer this question this morning, uh, to focus on you. Today is a a time to focus on you and where you stand with Jesus. Have you experienced the resurrection of Jesus in your heart this morning? Has it captured your soul and your life? Does it drive you each and every day to get up in the morning? We're going to look at John's account of the resurrection. Uh, John was an eyewitness to the resurrection. He records it in Scripture for us in the Gospel of John. And and as we go through this, uh, if you're a believer, your faith should be strengthened. Your doubts should be quenched. And you should have a peace that's rooted deep in your soul that only can come from Jesus being raised from the dead. And if you haven't had it yet, man, we are glad you are here. And those aren't just words of hyperbole. We're just not saying that. We are literally glad that you are here because today could be a resurrection in your life. And today you could know the peace of God because now you have peace with God. So let's look at John's written account. First, we see because Jesus rose from the dead, anyone can see that the tomb is empty. Verses 1 through 10. John 20, verse 1 says this, Now on the first day, the first day in the Jewish calendar is Sunday. It's Sunday. It would be our Monday. It is Sunday. The week uh, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. And while it was still dark, this is the the fourth hour of the fourth watch. So it's a time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So it's early in the morning. Mary can't sleep. And she, she rushes to the tomb, it says, and she says, it saw, she saw the stone that had been taken away from the tomb. There are no more any Roman guards there. Roman guards were set there on Friday when Jesus was placed in the tomb. They have since left and went and reported uh, that Jesus, the tomb is empty to Pontius Pilate and other religious leaders. So they're not there. So it's surprising when Mary comes to see the stone rolled away, no Roman guards. She looks in and she sees an empty tomb. Immediately, verse 2, it says, she, Mary, runs and goes and tells Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, who was that? John, that is John, that's right. The disciple whom Jesus Jesus loved was John. Then she said, hey, they took him. Who took him, Mary? I don't know, they, somebody took Jesus. He's he's not there. And then we see verse 3. Peter and John, the other disciple, are, are quickened in their spirit. And they rushed to the tomb. It says, so Peter went with the other disciple, John, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, I don't know about you, but I love little details like that in the Bible. Why would John feel the need to tell the world that he beat Peter in a race, right? I mean, think about it. Why would he do that? Well, one, I think he wanted to give Peter a little humble pie because Peter was known as the, the leader of the apostles. And John's saying, hey, you might be the leader of the apostles, but I'm a better athlete than you. That's a, you know, and all of history will know that forevermore. 
And number two, John just won the first ever Easter Day 5K race, right? <laughs> so give that guy a prize, all right? I love John. I resonate with John. Maybe that's why, because he's a great athlete. <laughs> the older I get, the better I was. That's all you guys need to know, all right? All right. The heartbeat, though, of this, of seeing the tomb is empty in five, uh, verses 5 through 8. So John beats Peter to the grave, and he looks in the tomb. He doesn't go in the tomb. He just, he just stoops in and looks in. He could see. And then Peter gets there, uh, finally, you know, huffing and puffing. He finally gets there. And he, he doesn't stop, but he goes directly into the tomb, probably to save some face for losing the race. So he just goes right in. And then after Peter goes in, John goes in. And it says in verse 8 that we see that John saw and believed. Now, we look in verses 5, 6, and 8, and we read the word saw. Uh, saw. And here's the cool thing about the Greek language um, in which the New Testament was written, which John was written in. It is a very specific language. In fact, there are three words used for the word saw there. Three different words because they emphasize different degrees of what Peter and John saw. Different degrees of them seeing what was at the tomb. The first one, saw, is the word blepo, which means saw. It's a, it's a general ob- observation. John runs there, and again, he sees no Roman soldiers there. He sees that, you know, the stones rolled away, and he's curious. He's like, he's, he's just taking in the whole picture from a 30,000 foot view. Kind of stoops in, sees the linens there, but he doesn't go in. That's the first saw. The second saw, it means to consider and observe. This is Peter. Remember, Peter goes into the grave, and now Peter's in the middle of the grave tomb. And, and, and there he's looking and he sees the linens that Jesus was wrapped in, like a cocoon. And his head garment is, is laid to the side and it's folded neatly. And Peter is starting to process all this information, all this evidence that the tomb is empty. Again, Peter's thinking like, who in the world could get past the Roman guards? I mean, it's like Trey King was guarding the tomb. They had you know, army rangers guarding the tomb. But they're not there. Who could get past the the army rangers? And then who could roll away the stone? I mean, the stone was thousands of pounds. I mean, they didn't have CrossFit back then, right? No functional strength. Who could who could do that? And and if it was tomb raiders, if it you know that, that was a, a plausible thing, there were a lot of people back then that that raided tombs and stole jewelries and the the spices that they use on the wraps. They would take those and confiscate. It. So if, if there were tomb raiders who took the tomb, like Laura Croft or Indiana Jones, I mean, why would they leave the linens there, right? In those movies, they go, they raid a tomb, they take everything. They don't they don't stop and wait and and you know unravel the bodies. They take the whole body. So. This is what Peter is processing. And then he's like, well, why are the, why are the bandages just so neatly like, like there's, there should be someone in there, but they're not. They're nice and wrapped still like a cocoon. And, you know, they're, they're not thrown all over the place or ripped apart. He's processing all of the evidence. He's rationally thinking about where is Jesus? How did this happen? So that's the second word, Saul. And then finally, the third one, hara'o, is in verse 8, and it's John. And that word means to observe and experience. 
So first we see blepo, it's a general observation. Then we see there's a, there's a scene, there's an observation, there's a considering. He's, he's contemplating what is going on here. And then the last word, saw, in John, it's like, the light goes on. I get it. Jesus is not here. He is risen. The body wasn't stolen. In fact, it goes back to his teachings. Now, the scripture says they didn't fully understand that till later on. But what they did understand, what John did understand and believe is that Jesus Christ raised himself from the dead. Now, as I want to think about that, I would bet most of us in here came to faith through a very similar process of seeing, haven't we? There was some general observations that we made about Jesus and the Bible and about our standing before him and sin and grace and mercy, just some real general things. And then, and then we started to get curious. It's like, hmm, if this is true, I, I want to ask some questions. Why would God become a, a baby and be born in a manger? And, and why would he have to be my substitute? Why would you have to live a perfect life in my place? I mean, can't I merit good favor with God? Can't there be enough things that I do that God says, hey, Aaron, good job. Come on in. No. Why did he have to live? Why, why did he have to die on the cross? Th- those are some of the contemplations. And then it clicks for us, didn't it? Doesn't it? The evidence becomes a reality. It goes from our head to our heart. We experience the grace. We experience the love and the peace. And all of a sudden, we're like, I believe. That probably describes the most of our experiences in here. And what I want to point out is, is that the Christian faith is not a blind faith. It's not a blind faith. Uh, We just don't believe in anything. We're not a simple people. We just believe without reason or evidence. We actually use our minds and think about these things just like Peter and John did. In fact, it takes a lot of thinking. It takes a lot of reasoning and contemplating and asking the tough questions and seeking answers. And it's then we take the step of faith and believe in the gospel, in the resurrection of Christ. It's not a simple faith. Tim Keller says this, the Christian faith is more than reasoning and thinking, but it's not less than reasoning and thinking. There is a point where faith kicks in. We don't have all the answers. Uh, the, the, the scripture takes us to a point, and then we have to believe by faith. There's a, uh, for us in the world, uh, non believers seem to look at Christians and go, oh, you guys are simple people. You guys will just believe anything. You guys are gullible. And that is just not the case. That is just not the facts. Again, the Christian faith is. More than reasoning and thinking, but it's not less. So Jesus, um, um, so, so John and Peter see this evidence. They experience this evidence. This is what I want to do right now is I want us to take a step and, and see through their eyes what they saw, what they experienced in the grave tomb. Because again, we're talking about we can understand that the tomb is empty. So let's take a look at the evidence that the tomb was empty very quickly. And how do you explain the empty tomb? All of us in here, whether we're a believer or not a believer, we have to explain the reality that the tomb was empty. So what is your explanation? For us as Christians, we say that Jesus rose from the dead. He he talked about it in John, uh, the gospel early on. He says, hey, in three days I'm going to die and I'm going to raise this body from the dead. Well, so we see it through his teachings, but we also see it through evidence. 
We see it through circumstantial evidence, and we see it through physical evidence. And so let's just point out a couple ways in which we see and explain away. Um, Those that do not believe, back then, when this came into account, we see in Matthew 28, uh, the opponents of Jesus had to come up with an explanation of why the tomb was empty. So the Pharisees say, some of the Roman guards go to the religious leaders today and say, hey, yo, Jesus is not there. They're like, what do you mean he's not there? He's like, he's not there, he's gone, right? And so they're like, okay, this is what you tell the people that the disciples took the body. And it says that that thought spread throughout the Jews. That was the, their answer to the empty tomb, that the disciples took the body. Now let's see if that holds weight. Um, if you're a disciple, they were, they were cowards. They were hiding in the room. They were scared to death. And then all of a sudden they come in contact with the risen Jesus, and now all of a sudden they are courageous. What changed? What changed is they saw the resurrected Christ. Now here's the point. If the disciples took the body and it was a lie, that goes against just basic reasoning. Because you don't lie so you get punished and eventually get put to death, right? All the disciples ended up being martyrs. All the disciples ended up dying. If they knew that Jesus' body was at Peter's house, do you think they would go out, proclaim the gospel of God, then all of a sudden, when the Indians came out against Thomas and get ready to spear him, he'd be like, oh, time out, psych, you know, just kidding. No one's going to die for a lie if you willingly know that, right? Or Peter, who was crucified upside down? That doesn't make sense. So we see that that does not hold water, that explanation, that the disciples took them. No, what makes sense is the disciples saw the resurrected Christ, and they went from uh, doubters, they went from uh, cowards to courageous men, to courageous women, to going across all the world and proclaiming the gospel even to the point of death. So that was kind of the, the old way that they explained the way. What about today? How do historians explain away the empty tomb today? Now, most historians, both secular and sacred, said, hey, the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus is gone. The the tomb is empty. That's not the argument. The argument is, okay, well, what happened? Well, they say this. Uh, As as popular as this um, notion was, someone wrote a book in the year 2006. It's known as the swoon theory. That Jesus on the cross, after he went through all of his beatings, all of his tortures, after being scourged to death with a cat of nine tails, after being crucified, after um, not having his legs broken because Romans says that he was, he was dead, so they didn't break his legs, um, and after having a spear jammed up into his hide and exploding his heart, and then we have a mixture of blood and water proving scientifically years later that he was dead. So after all that happened, what this book says and the swoon theory says is, oh, Jesus just passed out. He just, he just passed out. He couldn't take all the pain, all the shock. He just kind of passed out. And then when he was in the tomb, he was resuscitated. The tomb was cold, and it kind of resuscitated him. He came back to life. He got up after being hung on the cross, all of his joints out, a spear jammed in his heart. His heart exploded. He kind of got up, walked out. Then he moved the 3,000-pound the stone by himself, and he walked out the tomb. That's their theory. Now, hey, I'm not a medical doctor, Okay, and I only have a public school education degree, but I'm pretty sure if a spear gets jammed into your heart and explodes, you're dead, right? Anyone with me? Everyone's with me. So how foolish is that theory? How foolish is that explanation? The question is there. How much faith does it take to believe that the disciples took the body? 
or in the swoon theory. It seems like those are pretty, pretty much a stretch. You have to have more faith to believe in those than you do that Jesus, God, became man, resurrected himself from the dead. Thomas Arnold said this, the famous author of the history of Rome. He said, I've been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know no one fact in history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the great sign which God hath given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. That's the evidence. That's what Peter and John experienced. That's what we experienced. Everyone in here has to say, hey, the tomb's empty. Well, why? We say because God raised himself from the dead. We stand on the shoulders of Peter, James, John, and as we see, Mary. That leads us to our second point. Because Jesus rose from the dead, anyone can hear his voice this morning and believe. Verses 11 through 18. John says this in John 20, 11, 15. Uh, to summarize, Mary, she also runs. Nice, nice guys. Don't, you know, nice chivalry. How about, how about, how about lead Mary, walk with Mary, run with Mary, don't just jet to the tomb, but they lagged her behind. There's some, they got to, they should go to man school when they get to heaven. Well, man school, teach them how to treat a woman. All right, here we go. Um, she gets there and she, she, she's weeping. She's crying. Her, her Lord, her Savior, this man in which she loved and followed and believed in, um, is, is, is no longer there. Someone took him. She stoops in and she sees two angels there. And other, other accounts say they take the form of the man. And, and they ask her a question. Do you ever ask yourself, when you read the Bible, you should ask yourself questions. Why are you weeping, Mary? Is, hey, angels, way to be perceptive, right? You know, you're at a grave site, right? Why are you weeping, Mary? And then Jesus, I mean, sorry, then Mary explains why she's weeping. You know, someone's taken her Lord. And then Jesus shows up out of the blue and asks her the same question. Remember, it's dark, so she doesn't recognize Jesus. She thinks Jesus is just a gardener. He asks the same question, and, he, and she answers him. But she doesn't recognize Jesus until verse 16. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It was at that moment when Mary heard Jesus' voice, when, when Mary heard Jesus call to her in that special tone that only he did, Mary. She believed. She believed. She knew exactly who he was. And he was alive. Her Lord and Savior was alive. And then she grabs him like an MMA fighter, right? Where Jesus almost has to tap out because it says, he's like, do not cling to me. Mary didn't want Jesus to leave no more, so she just grabbed him and hugged him because she knew who she was. She was overwhelmed with joy, peace. Then verse 18, it says, Mary Magdalene went to announce to his disciples, I have seen the Lord and they, and that he had said these things to her and he gives them. So why does John highlight Mary Magdalene? We know from other accounts, Mark, Mark, Mark chapter 16, that there were a bunch of women that went to the tomb, not just Mary. There's a bunch of other ladies that went to the tomb first to, to again finish the burial rites of Jesus' body. But why does he specifically single out Mary Magdalene? Because she's probably one of the greatest proofs, the greatest evidence of the resurrection of Christ as well. 
And that this story that we read in John and the other Gospels is historically accurate and true. So who was Mary Magdalene? Well, first she was a woman, right? As most Marys are. Um, That's not shocking, but it's a very important detail to us. Why? Why is it so significant that Jesus first, the first person that Jesus showed himself to resurrected was Mary, a woman? Because in that culture, a woman's testimony was not valid. In any case, in, in business, in the religious, you know, um, cycle of the government, uh, a woman was not, her voice was not accepted, was not valid, was not looked upon as being true or accurate, and especially in the court of law. That's why we even read the disciples when Mary first went back and said they had taken the Lord. In Luke 24, it says, these words seemed to them, the disciples, an idle tale. They didn't even believe them because Mary was a woman. Celsius, this was the main thought that has followed women throughout centuries. Celsius, a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century AD, was highly antagonistic to Christianity. He was a very ardent opponent against Christianity. He wrote a lot of books against Christianity. And one of his main arguments not to believe in the resurrection was that the testimony of Mary Magdalene. Are you ready for his quote, ladies? Get ready, you guys braced. Don't, 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 don't get mad at me. This is not me, all right? This is Celsius, all right? This is what he said. Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. Oh, it's not done yet. He says, and we all know that women are hysterical. Yeah, dudes, there's no dudes should be laughing in there. Just the ladies can like, yeah, 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 right? But that was the mentality back then in Roman culture and thousands of years later. It's invalid. That's why the reason why the resurrection is not true, because its, it's first witnesses are women, and they're hysterical. Therefore, historians said, if you wanted to start a new movement, if you want to start a new religion, if you want to start a new, you know, um, um, government um, political party, you would never start out with the testimony of a woman. You would take a man, someone that's respectable in the in society. You know, maybe he's a religious leader, maybe he was a government official. That's who you would build the faith around. Not a woman, and not just any woman. Mary Magdalene. We know a little bit about her. Let's just say she wouldn't be maybe the, the woman you wanted to bring home to mom and dad. Uh, Luke chapter 8 says she was, uh, Jesus healed her of seven evil spirits. She was possessed by seven demons. She probably came from the town of Magdalene, which was known for its prostitution. So she was probably a prostitute. That's the way she lived and survived. So mildly to say we would, that would not be a person you want to be associated with, let alone be your star witness to show and tell the world that you have been risen from the dead. But Jesus doesn't care. This is the way it happened. In fact, this is the way that he ordained it to happen. He could have showed himself to the disciples first, but he chose to show himself to women. Just a side note, out of all the philosophies, out of all the religious uh, uh, ways out there, No one comes close to treating women like they should be treated than Christianity and Christ. That's just a little side note. That's another sermon altogether. 
But again, this proves it, I think, doesn't it? Jesus loves women. He showed himself to Mary Magdalene in particular, a prostitute. But don't you love that God has a big eraser and he can use anyone? Jesus doesn't care about the social norms or being politically correct on who to have on his staff. The first person he showed himself to after the resurrection is to Mary. And that is an earth-shattering fact that cannot be denied. That proves the resurrection story to be true and accurate. Now, why? Why would Jesus show himself to Mary Magdalene? Well, one, because that's how it happened. That's how it happened. That's how history presented itself. Those are the facts. There would be no other reason why to write the account this way. That's the way it happened. But secondly, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to save sinners. He came to save Mary's and Aaron's and, and Peter's and John's and Lydia's. And how did he seek and save Mary? Jesus called her by name. It was when she heard him say Mary that she turned and believed it was Jesus and everything clicked from her. John 10 says this. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and my sheep, they hear my voice. Romans 10 that says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, the word of God. This, this, this book right here that we hold in our hands is the very word of God speaking to us. It's Jesus speaking to you and to me just like he did Mary, John, and Peter. You see, faith comes by hearing and not seeing. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10 says, the word about Christ. It was the word that penetrates Mary's heart. In this account, and further, Jesus has us in mind as well. Even though this happened 2,000 years ago, Jesus has us in mind as well. If you look at verse 29 of chapter 20, it says, And Jesus said to him, Have you believed, talking to Thomas, you have seen... Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. Just very quickly. In Scripture, there is something more, um, there's a better evidence, there's a better testimony there's a, that is more than just seeing. We would put our eyes and say, oh, we need to see to believe. But in Scripture, it says, no, you need to hear to believe. That is more important. Peter in 2 Peter says he was, he, was out the, he was at the transfiguration where Jesus transposed himself and he saw the glory of the Lord. But Peter says that's not what is the best testimony. The best testimony is the prophetic word that we have in our hands. That is the best testimony, the prophetic word. So yes, Jesus saw Mary, but it was after she heard his voice. Faith comes by hearing a word about Christ. Now, some of us, all of us, were at one time in Mary's shoes. Apart from Christ, we all have a dark, dirty, shameful, sinful past. That's just the reality of being separated. Everyone in here, outside of Christ, has that past. And yet, I want to ask you, have you heard Jesus calling you? Have you heard his voice. And he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, hey, Aaron, go clean up your life first and then come back to me and then we'll see if we can do business. No, he says, come as you are. Come as you are, Mary. Demons, prostitution, I don't care. I love you and I came to seek and save you to make you whole again. Have you heard his voice calling to you? 
through the gospel to repent of your sins and trust in him as the only way to salvation. Have you heard Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and lean and learn from me for I am gentle and lonely in heart. And here you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you walking in here with the weight of the world on your shoulders? That you can't bear it anymore? It's crushing you and no matter what you try, whatever philosophy out in the world, whatever life coach you may have, it's not working. You're being crushed. Jesus says, come to me. And I will give you rest. I will relieve that burden. How about this in John chapter 4 at the woman at the well? This is what Jesus again shows his love for, for ladies. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. The water of the, of the world, the world's philosophies. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in her, in him, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You walk in here, is your, is your soul parched? Are you thirsty? You've been, you've been drinking from a number of different wells out in the world, thinking that they're going to satisfy you, thinking they're going to quench you, but in the end you're still thirsty? Hear Jesus this morning, voice talking to you. He's talking to you and me this morning intimately. Come to me. And drink from the water that I give you. And this will be all soul-satisfying water that will bring you to eternal life. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of the Lord. Listen this morning and respond to Jesus' voice talking to you just like Mary Magdalene responded to Jesus. Thirdly, finally, we see this. Because Jesus rose from the dead, anyone can have his peace this morning. Not only this morning, but forever. Verses 19 through 29. You see, the last time we see the disciples, uh, they were with Jesus, the upper room, we went through that. And when Jesus got arrested in the garden, the disciples scattered, scared to death, jetted on Jesus so that Jesus went to his trials, went to um, the cross all alone. They were gone. They weren't around. And not much has changed three days later. We still see that they are fearful. They have locked themselves up in a room somewhere so that no one knows where they're at. They are hiding. And then we look at verses 19 through 29, and we see this phrase, peace be with you. This is the main thought of, the, of these verses, is, is the peace be with you. We see it talked about three times. Jesus says it three times. In John twenty nineteen. he says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, again, it's still Sunday, the doors being locked where Jesus was, um, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, You cowards, I can't believe I picked you to lead my church. Is that what it says? No. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say you losers. It doesn't say you're fired. <clears throat> what does Jesus say? Peace be with you. He blesses them. <clears throat> we see that in verse 21. Jesus says it again. Peace be with you. Then we read it with Thomas. In the midst of him down, in verse 26, Jesus tells Thomas, peace be with you. These words should comfort your soul this morning. Comfort my soul this morning. Think about peace. What comes to mind when you think about peace? 
It probably has something like to do with this, that when there's peace in my life, there means that, you know, there's no war going on with someone or something. There's no conflict. The relational strife is, is quill. We're, we're in good terms with people. And that's part of it, but here it means so much more. Um, the biblical word peace has this connotation to it. It's shalom in the Hebrew and arena in the New Testament. And, and peace is described as this, something that is complete, that is whole. It's not lacking. Not missing anything. It's complete. It's whole. That, that all the complex parts are working as one, as they should be, together. And there is perfect well-being. There's a, a, there's a state of, of wholeness, of completeness, of, of well-being. I like to use the example of a puzzle, right? Do we have any people that love doing puzzles in here? Go ahead and raise your hands. Couple of you. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, puzzle. As an example of peace. When you complete the puzzle, right? Especially if it's like one of them like 2,000-piece puzzles, you know. Jeez, I can't even see half those pieces a lot of times, right? <clears throat> but when you complete that, what, 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 what overflows your emotions? A sense of, of peace, huh? It's like, I look at that, I look what the box says, and it looks exactly, that's it. It's complete. It's whole. It's peaceful. But what happens if you take a piece out, just one piece? What does that do? It wrecks your peace, right? Because some of you guys, like, you can't function until you put that piece back in, right? There's a hole there. It's not complete. It's not in a state of well-being. There's, it's not peaceful until you put that piece back in. Well, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus' resurrection was the last piece put in place for our redemption to complete our peace. That's what this resurrection is. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, he restores our relationship back with God the Father because ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, humanity rebelled against God. And it says that, that we were at war. We were at enmity with God. We had no peace with Him. And not only were we at war with Him, but He is at war with us. But because of Jesus, Romans 5.1 says this, we now have peace. We now have Shalom, we have arena, we have wholeness, completeness with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection was that last piece for our peace. Our relationship with the Lord, when we believed in Jesus and repented of our sins, on what he has accomplished for us on the cross, when he died, he drank the cup of wrath of justice that was due, that we should have died, that he, that he died, he was put in the buried, then he rose again. He has brought us back to wholeness. That has brought us back to wholeness. Look at the message that Jesus sends to Mary, that sends with Mary to his disciples. Look back at verse 17. Verse 17, Jesus says, hey, I want you to go tell my disciples something. He says, but when you go to my brothers and say to them, I, say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Why so amazing about that, that word brothers, that's the first time that Jesus uses that word towards his disciples. Before they were his disciples, they were his, his servants. Here, because that last piece of redemption has been put in the puzzle, the puzzle is now complete and whole, he calls you and me and his disciples and Mary Magdalene brothers and sisters. A new relational dynamic has taken place because of the redemption that's found in Christ. We now have peace with him, not only peace with him, but also we have a new father. I'm ascending to my father, Jesus says, and your father, to my God 
and your God. Again, because Jesus rose from the grave, defeating death and making a payment that satisfies God the Father's justice, the last piece of the puzzle was put in place, and now we can have peace with God. You can have peace with God. And not only do you get peace with God, but you get the peace of God. You see, there might be many of you in here this morning who are stumbling and struggling finding peace. That's just, that's just part of living in a Genesis 3 world. We all are there. It's, it's the battle that we all fight. We are all looking for peace. We are all looking for shalom. We are all looking for wholeness and completeness in our lives. But we have a lot of complex moving parts. And sometimes they don't cooperate with one another. We don't have peace in our relationships. We don't have peace in our job. We don't have peace in our hobbies. We don't have peace in our finances. It seems like everything around us is crumbling and we have no peace. And the reason why we don't have peace is because we tend to Look for it in all the wrong places. We tend to look horizontally in this world. We, we, we look to the things of the world that we can touch and see, the things that are tangible that we think, man, if I, if I just get this job out of college, I'll have perfect peace. If the Lord just brings me this spouse, I'll have perfect peace. If, 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 if I just have this body image. I just start to look like this. Perfect peace. And we all do this. We all put our eggs in those baskets looking for peace horizontally where that's not where peace is. Peace, first and foremost, is vertically. We must look vertically to Jesus because peace is a gift. It's not something you can obtain. It's not something you can work for. Peace is is a gift that comes from above. That's why in Isaiah it says, God says, I'm sending you the Prince of Peace, talking about Jesus. That's why Jesus says in John 14, he says, I am peace. My peace I give to you. I leave you my peace. Not as the world gives, but as I give. It's a vertical peace. Augustine said this, you and I have been made for God. And he says, oh, Lord, our hearts are restless. They're without peace until it finds its place in you. It's till we receive Christ in his redemption through the gospel that we have peace. So therefore, Jesus comes to you this morning, whether you believe or not believe, to grant you peace. And he doesn't come to scold you. That's good news, right? He doesn't come to say, oh, man, you're a failure. He comes and he says, peace be with you. I'm offering you my peace. It doesn't kick you off the team. Peace be with you. How does that hit your heart? How does that hit your soul? Knowing your life, knowing what you did last night, knowing what you did this weekend, knowing what you did this week, I look back at that and I just like, don't deserve it. But then my second response is verse 20, just like the disciples where Jesus says, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. Then the disciples were what? Glad. Happy. Joyful. It overwhelmed them. And that's what Jesus' peace does for me. I think it does for many of you. Many of you know and have experienced this peace. When the world around you seems to be crumbling because your horizontal relationships, they're just like, it's falling apart, but because your vertical relationship is fine, you know that he is working all things out together for your good. 
And that brings you a comfort. That brings you a peace. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. That truth all become your reality. You experience it. You read it. You experience it in your heart. Peace be with you. Gladness and joy. We can have because Jesus put us back, back into right relationship, back into relational peace with him. Quickly, we move on to see that this peace also overcomes doubt. We see this with Jesus' interaction with Thomas. Um, it says, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin or Didymus. Um, when we think of Thomas, what is the nickname? What do we associate Thomas with? Doubt, right? How about that? Maybe Thomas should have wrote a book because throughout history, John writes a book, and he's known as a disciple that Jesus loves, right? He's a better athlete than Peter. Thomas, John writes, and other people's, you're Eeyore. That's, that's, your, that's your title. That's your nickname. You're doom and gloom all the time. You're Mr. Imperial. You need to have the evidence. Just because, you know, 10 of us went this way, you're not going to join them. You've got to know the evidence. Verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, caught the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eeyore. Eight days later. Another detail. Eight days later. Can you imagine the disciples? They've experienced the risen Christ. They felt this joy and this gladness, but Thomas wasn't with them. And they're like, Thomas, <coughs> believe me, he's alive. We experienced him. You could have this gladness. And Thomas is like, you know, like, don't give me that. Unless I get to see him myself, I will not believe. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Thomas, you know, Sunday, now it's Tuesday, you know, Lord, eight days, in between that eight days, you know, Thomas waking up, hey, where, where's Jesus? Oh, there he is. Oh, never mind. He's not there, right? Can you imagine, you know, Thomas and what the interplay between the disciples who saw Jesus and Thomas? <clears throat> One quick little practical note here. This is why community is so important, that we bond with one another. But Jesus showed up to the ten. Thomas was gone. Where was Thomas? Why isn't he with the other disciples? Sometimes we can get in that mode here and now. We have Sunday gatherings, we have life groups, and and, and, and then people are gathering. And, and don't you ever sit sometimes when you hear the message and you go like, oh, man, I wish, I wish so-and-so was here. This could have really ministered to their soul. This could have brought them a, a security and a peace and a gladness to hear this message. Now, we don't listen to all messages like that. We first listen to ourselves. But has anyone ever had those thoughts? I think the encouragement here is, is every time you can be a part of Sunday gatherings, life groups, being a part of the community, get this. That way you don't miss the joy of the Lord. That way you don't miss God showing up and doing incredible things. It's just a side note. At the end we see the disciples are inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Scotty just beamed in Jesus again. And he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, did you ever ask yourself, how, how did he know what to say to Thomas? Jesus wasn't there when Thomas said this. How does Jesus know what to say? How does Jesus know to say, hey, Thomas, come here. Come here, Tom. Put your fingers here. See my hands. Here, put, put out your hand and place it at my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe, Thomas. 
And then Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He believed and he worshiped. Thomas went from Eeyore to Tigger, right? And not me. Because history tells us that Thomas went on to be a missionary in India. He took the message of the gospel. He took the message of the resurrected Christ to the nation of India. And there he was speared to death because of his proclamation of the gospel. Him encountering the risen Christ propelled him to live his life for Christ. We see a doubter, a skeptic, become a devoted missionary to the point of giving up his life. How does that happen? What has to happen in that person's soul to flip like that? He experienced the resurrected Jesus. Just like many of us have. You see, Thomas here is called one of the twelve. I'm sorry, one of the twelve and a twin. Do you know who his twin is? Many of us in here. Many of us in here are just like Thomas. I know I was, and still are. There are times where I what? I doubt. Anyone else with me? Anyone else in here doubt? I mean, think about it. It is kind of a stretch to believe that someone raised themselves from the dead. Let's just be honest in here, right? I mean, sometimes we've been a Christian so long, we read these stories about creation. We read these stories about Jonah. We read these stories about Jesus and, and... You know, we think, oh yeah, because we've experienced the love, the grace, the mercy. We experience miracles. We've seen God do miraculous things in, in our lives, whether financially or health-wise or, or with individuals. We've seen Jesus raise dead men from the, from the grave via repentance and faith and belief. We, we've seen and experienced that, but we forget that, yeah, that, that's kind of out there, some of the stuff that we believe. There is some doubt that can creep in. It's like the Roman centurion, Mark, it says, I believe, but help me in my unbelief, Jesus. We all are like Thomas at some level. And again, the way Jesus treats Thomas is the way he treats everyone else. Peace be with you, Thomas. In John 20, 21, we're going to focus on this next week. There's a mission that comes with this peace of God. It's peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Not only do we receive this peace of God individually, but now the Lord uses us to take this peace to our circles of influence where we live, work, and play. Again, we're going to really highlight that next week, but for the sake of time this morning, this is how I want to close. We've summed up this morning. We've seen the eyewitness testimony of John, Mary Magdalene, Peter, of Thomas, the disciples, We've looked at the evidence of the empty tomb. We've heard the voice of Jesus calling us through His Word to everyone in here this morning. It is my prayer this morning that everyone in here responds to the voice of God through the Gospel and walks out of these doors with the peace of God that only comes through the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for John's account. Lord, there's a lot of great stuff in here, great facts, but the bottom line is is that the tomb was empty. You have called us through the gospel, everyone in here. The call of repentance comes to everyone in here to believe that you are who you said you were, the, the Lord, the Savior, the sacrifice for everyone's sin in here, the one who rose again, and that salvation and this peace that everyone can have only comes from knowing you. I pray that everyone in here has bowed the knee to Jesus, repents of their sins, and trusts and walks by faith in what you have done for them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.